I discovered my, that my daughter had epilepsy. She had a massive mm. seizure. So I went to her teachers and they said, don't you know your daughter has a learning disorder? We've never seen you before, Mrs. Ku, because I was living in Malaysia and yeah. only coming home weekends. So that's why I quit. Mm. I quit because you can imagine the guilt of a mother, right? Building two babies in Malaysia when my real baby had a learning disorder. We love rooting for the underdog, but what does it really take to rise despite the odds as the underdog? Rosalind Koo founded CXA Group from her living room in 2013 after a storied career with multinationals with ambitions to transform health benefits for employees. Housed within an intratech boom rising in Asia, CXA is a Singapore-based startup designed to overcome antiquated processes while addressing escalating costs from worsening employee health. Today, CXA is on a mission to disrupt traditional practices through a platform driven by artificial and data intelligence. But of course, the road is never as easy as it seems. While CXA has served more than 600 customers with a reach of 400,000 employees and backed by the likes of Facebook co-founder Eduardo Severin, things changed drastically through the pandemic. A pivot that meant selling off her brokerage businesses, bringing CXA Group from 330 people in her team to now 15. What next? You'll have to tune in to find out. Share this with a friend. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top U.S. and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. Before we hop in here, I've got a quick favor to ask you. Smash the follow button wherever you're tuning into this episode. This way, you'll be the first to know about new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends, colleagues, business partners, so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture intersection and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. I'm so excited to have you. As, as I mentioned in the prelude there, uh, I went deep with your journey. So today, you know, I want to hear the untold story of, of Rosalind Koo. Uh, we're here really to learn, you know, not just about sort of the business aspect of it in terms of expansion and in terms of how you're growing through venture capital, if you're thinking about it, but really also your personal journey as a leader and, and sort of the billion dollar moves that you've taken in your life to get you to where you are today. So, so let's start from the very, very beginning mm. here in the first part of your career. Your father got on a dragon boat to go to um, Mexico and then ended up in San Francisco and then somehow married your mother at the age of, was it 59, did you say? Um, my my mother, my father was 59 right. when he married my mother. Right. And he decided one day to have a family and get started and decided to... Um, give himself up to amnesty, actually, right? Yes, so tell, yes. tell us a little bit about that, you know, and, and more importantly, how that story of your father and mother has shaped you. So my father um, was on a dragon boat, but he got to Mexico, um, swam up the border, right? Made his way to San Francisco, Chinatown, and he hid for 40 years as an illegal immigrant. So worked every odd job, and when he was 59, he decided he wanted to have children, but didn't want to marry any of the women in Chinatown because they were not legit. So he gave himself up 
for amnesty. And you know, if you did that now, right, you know, yeah. you'd be sent back to Mexico, even though he was from China. So he gave himself up. And back then, they actually gave him citizenship. So he went to Hong Kong and mm-hmm. met my mother um, and brought her back. What she didn't tell him was that she was in Hong Kong to make money because the communists sent her mother to labor camp. Um, her husband mm-hmm. was killed, and she left her two daughters behind right. in China. So she didn't tell him that she was married and had kids. So they got to San Francisco. I was born. Um, he, my father by then was 61, right? Yeah. Pre-Viagra, way pre-Viagra back then. <laughs> and... We're going there. Okay. My two brothers, right, were born. And that's when my mother told him, after the sons were born, she thought it was safe enough to say, by the way, I was married. Mm-hmm. I have two daughters. Can you please send them here to the U.S.? And by then, we had moved to Los Angeles. Um, right. My little sister was born, and my sisters immigrated to the U.S., but... Mm. Unfortunately, they got there during the Watts riots. That's the only place my family could afford a home. Um, They didn't know it was the middle of the ghetto. And we were the one Chinese family. So Mm -hmm. during the Watts riots, um, we we were the very different family. So my father was outside with the police to keep the rioters from, you know, coming into our house. So that's, that's how I grew up. Right. So my my sisters ran home from high school, and um, <sighs> what they said was, "We want to go back to China. <laughs> America mm-hmm. is not better than China than what we're used to, right? Mm-hmm. Because that was their first experience. So um, yeah, I we we grew up um, bullied, right? We were the picked on family because we were the one non black family. We're the bottom of the totem pole because you're different. My yeah. sisters didn't speak English. I didn't speak English. You know, so um, we had to climb up from the bottom. Um, but it shaped me because um, I run really, really fast. Right. Because <laughs> that's how I learned. They cannot beat you up if you run away really, really fast. Mm. I try never to look anyone in the eyes. <laughs> mm. I try to keep to myself. Um, but we became really scrappy. So, you know, when you struggle like that and you're trying to just survive and not get beaten up, um, yeah. you, just, you just learn a certain drive because we wanted to get ourselves out of poverty in that neighborhood. Right. And, and you somehow ended up at UCLA. Um, was it that drive, you know, sort of thinking that education would be your ticket? How, how does someone from that sort of upbringing, you know, with <laughs> poverty and running for life literally almost every day... Um, how yeah. do you get out of that mindset? So it's it's another accident. I babysat. Mm. I clean houses. Um, and the first really nice house I've ever seen, I wanted to find out what do you guys do, right? There's no graffiti. <laughs> you're up in the hills, right? It's two stories. You have a car. <laughs> and so um, the father told me he was an engineer and he went to college. So I decided I am going to college. And I'm going to be an engineer, whatever that is, because you right. have a nice house. <laughs> and so, so no, my mom never talked about college because my my both my parents were illiterate. So it, mm. it wasn't something we aspired to. But that one house and that accident got me to college as an yeah. engineer. Yeah, and, and it's so important. I mean, what it speaks to is it's you become what you can see, right? And, and for you, I mean, that even helped you choose your path because you ended up 
doing engineering, although you decided later on that you were a crappy engineer. I think I heard you say that before. Oh, yeah. I had punch cards. <laughs> dropping the punch cards. They're in a certain order. This is how right. long ago I was in engineering school. There weren't that many women. And yeah. I wasn't that good, I have to admit. But mm. I shouldn't have been in that major. <laughs> well, but it I exposed you to a different way of thinking, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Mm. So, so tell us then, you know, from UCLA, then, you know, you end up in Singapore. Uh, how did that happen? And then, you know, you started a little bit on your startup journey. I, I think it was uh, part of being tired of being a Tai Tai as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Tell us yes. a little bit about that. And, and then, you know, how you got into then leading Mercer um, and then now to CXA. Yeah. So, um my life is just a series of accidents. So um, after college, I got a job with Procter & Gamble. Um, mm-hmm. They hire engineers out of college, but they had me move from Los Angeles to Iowa. So I walk into this Procter & Gamble plant and they tell me, you are the first Asian. And I, <laughs> I think, oh my God, I'm always like that. I'm always the first Asian. Mm. <laughs> and these 33 people will report to you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what 33 people? So there were primarily men in their 40s and 50s, Mm. a few women, right? So I was a factory manager um, and I ran three shifts um, and third shift, we had to clean out the line. So I had Crest toothpaste um, Mm. and I was there during the time when we decided we're going to move from three months, you know, of having one flavor, one size to just in time demand. So it could be three hours. Right. So we had to train everyone on three shifts to be able to change, you know, runtime from three months to just three hour runs, right? So everyone had to learn every job and we had to wash out and clean out the cases and the toothpaste tubes, you know, on the run. So that was my two years. Um, and it was really hard. I was a very bad manager. I felt like a substitute teacher. Right. Mm-hmm. So what, here's this 21 year old girl from Los Angeles. And they kept asking me about China, right, Japan. And and I'm like, I don't know. I'm from the ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me right? about these other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and after two years, um, I got into business school. Um, I had a free ride to Columbia. I moved to New York um, and worked in banking for for eight years. I had to Mm. decide between two different jobs. Um, I had two final offers that I really liked. One was to be, um, to work in a nonprofit, to work with juvenile delinquents because I was one and I could relate. And the Mm. other was to be a banker. And Very different choices there. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So you can see my life, right? Yeah. Um, and the banking job made the same amount each month that I would make in a year. So I decided, okay, I think I will take the banking job, whatever that is. Right. Um, and I did everything for eight years, um, eight different mm. roles in eight different years. And in the eighth year, my husband got a job in London. So I decided, well, I should move with him. So I got a job in London with, you know, in the same bank. Um, And the day the movers came, um, we were told to move instead to Singapore. So that's Hmm. how I got to Singapore. We already found an apartment. I had a job. I bought winter clothes for my one-year-old because I heard London was really expensive. And the day the movers came, we were told, no, you're moving to Singapore. So I came to Singapore. And I didn't have a job. 
because mm-hmm. I didn't expect to come to Asia. So yeah. that's how I got here. And for three and a half years, I raised my daughter. I popped out a son because I didn't have a job, right? Why not take care of my kids? <laughs> and in Great jobs for yourself with children. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. This is my life, a series of accidental journeys, right? Love it. And so um, in 1999, a really good friend of mine built a startup and it was the dot-com and mm. asked me to invest some money. So I invest all of my, I sold all my bank stock, invested that money in. And one day I went to KL to check on his startup and decided, wow, I need to help you. <laughs> so mm. I helped him. We launch um, and a giant startup saw me and said, why don't you launch our big startup. We're funded by Bain Capital and Credit Suisse, right? Mm. Why don't you build us? And so I joined them. I launched them. Um, and that was from 99 to 2001. But And that got happened, you started. That got me started too um, in Malaysia. I was living mm. in Malaysia five days a week and I was coming home weekends because I had two little kids. One weekend, I come home and I discovered that my daughter had epilepsy. She had a massive seizure. So I went to her teachers and they said, don't you know your daughter has a learning disorder? We've never seen you before, Mrs. Ku, because I was living in Malaysia and only coming home weekends. So that's why I quit. Mm. I quit because you can imagine the guilt of a mother, right? Building two babies in Malaysia when my real baby had a learning disorder and epilepsy. Um, So I decided this was not the right time to commute to KL from Singapore for a startup and to focus on kids. Um, So we we found out it was actually triggered by sleep deprivation. Why? Because both her parents had regional jobs and we were not home. We were traveling all the time. So fix her sleep, put both my kids into um, special needs. My son, you keep your sister company. Mm -hmm. One of my clients from my startup, an insurance company came to me and said, hey, do you want to build our e-business? Because you've just built two. um, And you can work from 9.30 till 3 and drop off your kids and pick them up. Just work four days a week and build our e-business. Um, that turned into, why don't you run Singapore? Then why don't you run the region? <laughs> so, And then um, the largest broker, I, I decided as an insurance company, I'm not going to pay brokers. I took 200 of their clients and they hired me. I was the enemy. Yeah. So they told me not that much travel, just four countries. It ended up being 14 countries. Yeah. So, and we grew 800% in my time there. Wow. But that was my yeah. journey. So it's nothing was planned. I don't think I planned anything in my life. <laughs> so this is this is interesting. I actually uh, spoke to, I mentioned uh, Rajiv from Cathay. And one of the key things he said was, every time I see the ball, the, the biggest advice he would give is see the ball, hit the ball. And it sounds like that's been the way for you where, um, I mean, the way you're telling it now, of course, it's a well-packaged story. You've, you've perhaps, you know, told this um, more than once before. But in that time, I mean, of, of you know, feeling that guilt of your daughter um, not, you know, learning in the way that she could because of um, something that you perhaps missed. And then the stress of actually growing a startup, which is tremendous, right? I I mean, let's talk a little bit about that. In that time of a little bit of a personal crisis, how did you, what was your mental model in deciding um, this is more important? I'm going to do this now. It doesn't matter. You know, how, how do you 
come to a hard decision? Oh, it was really hard. Um, my husband didn't even mm. think about quitting. I have to tell you at that time. He was, I mean, because he was building Asia Pack from his New York firm. Right. So there was no thought of him quitting. Um, mm. I had my mom here from Los Angeles, but, you know, she she's 60 years old taking care of my babies. So, yeah. no, I saw no choice but to focus on my kids because I didn't know, you know, I, I was so deep and so obsessed with my startups that that's all I did. Right. Until the guilt of the mother, right? That was, that was a come to Jesus moment for me. Mm. And this is interesting. I mean, uh, you know, the, the fact that your husband didn't even think about um, him taking a step back, right? And, and I want to get to the point of just women always being the one that takes a step back. How, yes. how do you think about that? I mean, you know, it sounds like you did a little bit of that. Was it because it felt, you know, startups are not that serious at that time? Um, he was the stable one. Was there a conversation at home? I mean, you know, this is important. We don't talk about this, right? Partnerships yeah. with someone who's an entrepreneur is really hard. <laughs> the sacrifices, the stress. How, exactly. how did you decide this between both of you in the household? So there wasn't even a conversation, right? Mm. I just decided, okay, I've launched it, right? We've gotten it really far. And look, I'm the mother. But you know what? This time around in my startup, my husband took the step back in mm. this startup, CXA, right? He had retired before I took all his money. And then now he's no longer <laughs> retired. And he yeah, we need to get to, to that. his old company. So yeah. he stayed stayed back and he's been mm. wanting to move back to the US, you know, go mm. back to San Francisco to our house. But look, he's waiting for me this time. So we took turns. Right. I came to Asia for him, right? Yeah. But he's staying in Asia for me. Yeah. I love that. I, I love the um different. Different career timelines. I think that works out well. So, so do you think uh, that having a corporate person, because your husband's a lawyer, right? I believe. He was a lawyer, he was, um, okay. but he was the head of a company called Oliver Wyman. It's in New York. Right. Right. Yeah, so yes. he was the Asia PAC leader. Um, so right. he's a consulting leader. Right. So, I mean, he had the stable corporate job, lawyer to consultant, and then you um, had your startup that you then turned into CXA. So so let's move to that about taking your husband's savings. I mean, uh, wow. I mean, you know, I, I heard this on, on our last call with an effort and uh, tell us about that. You started your, <laughs> your business uh, in the living room. A bunch of people ended up starting working <laughs> To your husband's dismay, what's going on here? And then exactly. more than that, you decided to find his key to, to the savings, not only of, of his savings and yours, but also that for your, your children's future. Exactly. How exactly. did you come to this decision and how oh. did this come to be? Yeah, so um, so the reason I left Mercer was I asked for $10 million, right? Mm. I was the fastest growing part of the whole world. We grew 800% in my time there to about a billion dollars in premium. But clients complain incessantly, not just about us, but mm -hmm. the entire industry about the rising healthcare costs. So I knew how to fix it. I just needed 10 million. They had everything else, the brand, right? The footprint, they just needed technology because everything was manual. Right. 
So, so, they never so said yes. Muslim, before that, t- t- tell us a little bit deeper because I mean, the audience wouldn't know the, the particular problem that you were trying to solve there with Mercer, you know, in terms of the client's complaints. What was it specifically that needed that $10 million? What was that uncharted territory? So um, every year, insurance premiums would rise double digit in Asia. Mm-hmm. So at least 10% a year and it's not controllable. And then at the same time, your employees are getting, you know, worsening health. And everyone has the same benefits no matter what, right? And it's all paper. You spend a lot of money out of pocket. It's very antiquated, right? There's no personalization. So I wanted the tech to be able to personalize to each employee, but Mm. also directly integrate the entire ecosystem to the clinics, the doctors, get rid of all of the middlemen, digitize insurance. Here in Asia, you have to submit a hospital receipt. It's like 10 pages. It's an actual receipt, right? So, and will you ever be reimbursed? You don't know. It could be months and months and months. But Mm. what if it's all digitized and the insurance company can integrate the hospitals and the clinics and the teledocs and the health screening? But what if we can also shift some of that money into prevention? Right. Mm. Instead of waiting till people get sick, what if we can detect that you have diabetes super early and can manage that instead of waiting till you're super sick? I I actually had a Chinese client. um, And what they said to me was that, you know what? We bought insurance and we found too many late stage cancers. Yeah. It's too late. Why couldn't we? Because we also get the health screening. Why couldn't we do early detection? And manage that. Why can't someone consolidate the health screening and the insurance and the prevention and the chronic disease management all in one? So, you know, why is it all separate? Why is it sick care? Why isn't it prevention? So we figured out how to digitize, how to reduce the cost of insurance and doctors, because there's so many middlemen, right? And why do you need to see an agent or a broker? Or why do third-party administrators connect the clinics and doctors? Why do insurance companies have a man with a pen? Sometimes a pencil because you make a mistake to do pricing. Yeah. <laughs> they call it sharpening your pencil because it's not automated, right? You're, it's an yeah. actual pencil. So I decided, look, technology's here. And why don't I do this for the industry? So the fifth year when they said no again, I decided to quit and come up with the 10 million myself. Yeah. And before we get to that, I want to, you know, dig a little bit deeper here in terms of the why. I mean, this is essentially a disruption, right? You know, you're talking about middlemen who have profited from this inefficiency. Right. Yes. So even, you know, we talk about the broker's business and I, I know you've uh, sold, sold that off and are selling uh, perhaps your, your third one as well. But talk to us a little bit about, you know, resistance in a corporate and how, how you thought about that, you know, to, to say that um, this will change and I'm going to be the one to disrupt it, you know, to, to be so courageous and bold with that uh, conviction. How did you come to that? So. Even before I joined Mercer, I was in an insurance company and that's what I was doing. Why do we have to pay these people when we do all the work? All they're doing is introducing clients, but we do all the work. So why do it? But of course, once they hired me, I had to come up with a way to make them more valuable, 
right? Yeah. So I got closer to the customer. And then I found out, oh my God, it's all paper everywhere. No one's agri- No one's using data, right? The only data is used is to increase your cost the next year, right? Mm. You had too many sick people, so we're going to increase your cost. So employers and employees bear the burden. Um, but since I had worked in startups before, and in New York, one of my jobs in banking was to run retirement, where we had technology for the 401k, right, yeah. for companies and employees. And the disruption there was it's not based on a fixed sum. It's based on how your, your mutual funds do, right? So you bear the cost. And so I built the 401k of healthcare. Mm-hmm. right? There's a fixed wallet. You are responsible for your health, but you decide how to spend it on insurance, on early detection, on prevention, on wellness, right? Why can't I connect all the pieces so someone can do that and take personal responsibility, but help the companies figure out if it's primarily obesity and diabetes, can we bring those programs in and help the insurance companies actually build something digital, from right. sales all the way to the supply chain to pricing. Right. It's not that hard. Every industry has done it, but you know, no one wants to do it because you have to connect the village in every yeah. country. Right. And how did you get started it. there? Yeah. And and that's a hard thing, right? I mean, in, in Asia, it's also um very fragmented, right? Um, it is there are totally. different parties not talking to each other. And that's no that's one the reason, talks. right? That's and uh, even today, actually, you know, you talk about data, even the COVID management system in, in places like uh, Malaysia, there's been a lot of talk about how inefficient, how, you know, they call it big data, but it's not really, right? How, how are we, you know, have we advanced since you started? And how did you even get started on that journey of convincing people this is the right thing to do? I mean, now oh. it, it, it sort of makes sense, right? Like, oh, you should have done this. But yes. hindsight is always twenty twenty. How how did you, as the entrepreneur, when the when it feels like the world is against you, um, how did you start building and building and building? So um, the first thing I knew was that I needed to own a broker, because mm-hmm. only with clients can you convince and ensure there's something for them. Mm. So at that point in time, you couldn't apply for a license. You had to buy one. Right. So that's where the accidental money came in. So Mm. to buy one, um, I had to go to the regulator and they said, look, you have to be the sole shareholder because I actually had a backer, a PE firm that was going to back me. They said no, because you know, PE firms will strip out our little SME brokers and sell it off. So you have to be the sole shareholder. So I said, well, so shareholder, does that mean I can use my husband? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I had money and I had a backer. I was going to use my savings. But then since I couldn't get the backer, I needed $3 more. And I didn't have Mm. $3 million more. So I found the keys to my husband's cabinet. And I looked at his bank statements and found out he had the money. Yeah. So I had to convince him to give me Give me your money, my money, mm. and I'll take out a loan for $5 million, and we have the $10 million to buy this broker and to build a platform. So it was only because the regulator told me I needed to be the sole shareholder. Understood. Now they wouldn't do that, right? But they did yeah. back then. So at that point in time, I had to use up all our savings. 
but that's and how that's did your husband take that how, how did your husband I mean how was that <laughs> if we can go there I mean we've already gone so many places but how was that conversation this is an important conversation right it's it's taking it all his life's work uh your children's future to build something that did you at that time have conviction that no matter what I'm going to succeed like you'll get your money back but did, did you have that yes. belief in yourself I did because I was the industry veteran and we were the largest in Asia. We were 50% bigger than the number two across Asia by the time I grew it. So Mm. I knew we could do it. The one question I didn't know was, would they buy from a no name, Mm. right? Versus the biggest brand, right? Because that matters, right? Right. Would they buy from someone that works in their living room? Yeah. (laughs) No, they don't. They They didn't have to know. (laughs) Yes, but if we are 10 times better than the globals, would they buy it? So what I told my husband was, look, I can always sell this broker and give you your money back. So yeah. no matter what, I am buying an asset. And as long as I can grow it, I can give you mm. your money back. So that was the promise I gave him. So yes, so, we have paid him his money back. Good. <laughs> so- I'm glad. Well, he was your first investor in some way, right? I mean, the fact that you invested in yourself, I think that's, and, and that uh, helped you with financing as well, right? I think uh, you mentioned this before. Uh, a lot of actually, I you know, I'm in the fund management business and a lot of uh, the limited partners that invest into funds, uh, part of it, they call it the GP commit, where they want to see the fund managers put stake in the game, right? Um, yes. So that's definitely what you did there. Interesting. So, so. The, you, you bought Pan Group. That was the broker that you first brought, right? Yes. Um, and that was in a way, actually, the, I, I was thinking about this, you know, your, your step into the market. It was a go-to-market strategy in some way because you also got them to have the platform, right? And, and then that was your way to test the technology in some way. Exactly. Tell us a little bit about how you expanded from there. You know, what was then the next step? So um, we did build our technology. We did... They used to have a lot of SMEs, but I mm-hmm. added, you know, the global 500, the Fortune 500 companies, because I was able to win large tech companies, large banks, large manufacturers. All the people who complained to me before, when I finally solved their issue, they came over yeah. at the same price, mm. right? So the offering was, if you buy insurance from us, you get this platform for free that does all these things, right? Even though we're not a global company, but they came. Um, and so I decided, okay, now that was our first market. We can prove it in Singapore. And the good news about Singapore is they're the regional headquarters for lots of firms. So they can decide if they're happy to give us their other mm. countries. So I decided the second market was an even larger market, um, Hong Kong, because it's even richer, and China. So three regional headquarters. These are the three largest employee benefits markets. So if I get a foothold in these three, then Mm. I can actually take the largest clients from the other brokers and solve some issues. So we decided, okay, why don't we start first with the brokers and win the largest companies? And that's what we did. And that's how we actually got funding. So not only did I have, you know, a stake in by by putting in my own money, we actually grew really fast um, mm. and took giant clients away from the globals. And so we did a Series A and then a Series B. Um, mm. So we we found funding along the way. Yeah, and how did that um, sort of you know what you initially when we started this conversation you said you know as a no name brand that was your number one concern right. 
even yes. with the same pricing, how are we going to able? How are we going to, especially in, in insurance, where uh, there is some inertia, right? You know, there yes. there there are clients that have been with a certain brand for the longest time, and legacy systems exist. Da, 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 da. How do you win over, you know, from from the globals, the, the big brands, as a uh, no name? And how did you approach that? What was your acquisition start strategy? So it it was really hard. I didn't know how difficult it was, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you're 10 times better with the tech, you're still a no name. But yeah. eventually we took 500 companies away and a million wow. users, right? But it took And in what time frame? Yeah, I was going to ask that. In what time um, frame? So that took us about 5 years. Wow. So five hard years, enterprise sales, right? Mm-hmm. Learn the tech, use the tech. And the tech, it was hard to convince. First, we had to convince the insurers. But the only way to convince insurers is you win a giant client, they're going to bid. They want to be the insurer. Mm-hmm. Then we had to convince the clinics to integrate them, the health screening, right? And to integrate, they have to build APIs and we have to build APIs. So you're, you know... Being a no-name brand, how do you convince them? You have to have a giant client that wants it to pay all the parties. So I had to win clients as a prerequisite to even build the ecosystem because no one wants to integrate with you unless you can show that you can get bigger than the globals. Yeah. So with a chicken and egg situation like that, right? It's sort of, you need to build the ecosystem, but you need a client first, da, da, da. Yes. How did you think about that and... Uh, what was your first big break? You know, in that five years, I mean, I'm sure it was a hard journey, but what was your first break, which gave you the conviction to say, okay, we're on the right track. Okay, let's do this. So we won one of the largest tech companies. That was our first win. Mm-hmm. Uh, big brand name one. Uh, secondly, we won a large bank, right? Banks have so much inertia with their insurance, yeah. but we were able to win. And then we won the largest manufacturer in Singapore. So, and, and how did that, that was happen? In our first year. Wow. How, how so did that happen? Three clients were the biggest complainers at my old firm. Mm. <laughs> and my old firm could not solve it because they didn't have the technology. So, once you have the technology, and you're able to do things that were not they were not able to do before. They were able to convince their procurement to move. Right. And what was this? So specifically? I decided so, to pick one from each. Right. Right. And and what was this pain point specifically? I mean, I hear you loud and clear that it's a great great gem. You know, listen to your complainers. You know, harp on them and solve their pain points. What what were these pain points at that time? So. Um, the bank wanted to be able to um, integrate their health screening with their insurance data mm. um, and the clinics. So you understand what the diagnosis and the drugs are with health screening and the HR data. So no one did that because there was no data. Mm. So we had to build a platform so that they could understand age, gender, diagnosis, drugs, health right? Once you know that, then you could figure out, okay, this is pre-diabetes. This is what we Mm. need to do to actually help someone get healthier. So that was never done before to integrate these different points. But to do it, I had to integrate directly to the health screening labs. 
I had to integrate directly to the clinic software. I had to convince doctors to let me integrate because they don't want to build an API, right? So Mm -hmm. I had to win the biggest clients in order to do that. I had the HR data because I was able to build the ability to upload from payroll. So the ability to take these disparate pieces and digitize it was huge for them. So if no one else in the industry does it because they're just using a piece of paper, right? Mm -hmm. And there is no platform. This was was a major change. But now if you have a wallet and you're able to decide how much insurance do I need? I'm married to someone that covers the whole family. So I'm going to use his insurance, but I'm going to free up money for my kids. I'm going to free up money because I want to go to the gym and do yoga, Mm -hmm. right? And do pediatrics, right? Not buy so much insurance for the whole family because my husband's already covering me. So we were able to do that and allow people to actually tailor to themselves and their mm-hmm. life stage. So that so, that was a big change. Yeah. And this is exciting. So essentially what you've built now, uh, and let's go into your next journey of, of pivoting, but it's essentially a menu of options for the employee. Right. Exactly. So you can go to the gym. Exactly. And, and I, I've seen I've seen the hashtags where employees, you know, do the fit challenge and and among them, you know, are competing to be healthy, which is fantastic. Yes. Uh, and, and, and they get more money wants. in their wallet. So they get more mm. money in their wallet if you win the health challenge, right? Yeah. Or if you lose weight, right? Or if you quit smoking or you improve your diabetes. But now you can figure out. What, what could be done, right? And all of this is digitized into one app, you know, but insurance doesn't work that way. Yeah. And, and this is interesting. I mean, you surely weren't the only one thinking about this disruption. I mean, you know, um, even the, the, the birth of venture capital and, and investors that were thinking about the next uh, generation of where startups would be, you know, surely there was competition at that time um, whilst you were building, what was the landscape like and how has it evolved? And, and let's go into now, you know, through the pandemic, you've made some big decisions as well. Yes. So um, there were different types of competitors, brokers, mm. um, the big ones. Um, Teladoc came in, but they don't have any insurance. Mm. Um, the third-party administrators integrated the clinics but they still don't link it to selling insurance. They're just like processing the claim when you go to a clinic or a hospital. Mm. Um, There are wellness providers um, and there, I mean, all kinds, the whole spectrum of wellness providers, a whole spectrum of chronic disease providers. But is there anyone gluing it together and building the basic plumbing and infrastructure? Mm that links it all together for a company and each employee and tailor it for each company to their benefits, to their wallet, right? So it's, we find different players all over, um, but no one's kind of pulled it all together, especially for corporates, especially in each market. So I do expect people to come in, but yeah. No one has yet, maybe because they noticed that it's so hard. <laughs> it's hard yeah, and, for us. And well, 
and continues to be an advantage, right? I mean, it reminds me a lot of, uh, I'm reading uh, Jeff Bezos, Bezos now um, on, on the Everything Store, which is a great book by Brad Stone. And that's part of his story, right? Where um, he started off doing one part, right? Getting the books and then building the plumbing to enable that whole ecosystem. And year upon yes. year continues to innovate and actually has a big paranoia about competition and, and what next. So, so now for you, as you're thinking about, you know, how the pandemic has changed things, um, yes. you've it's forced you to make some very hard decisions, lay off some it people. Talk, talk to us it a little has. bit about that. Yeah, so COVID, of course, shocked all of us. Yeah. Um, what happened in Singapore and Hong Kong um, was that no one wanted to see our brokers, right? It's such a face-to-face business. In China for two months, right, no one wanted to see them, but then China, you know, got in control of the pandemic pretty quickly and then it started growing. So that was so revealing for us, right? Mm. The future is not the face-to-face business. At the same time, we actually won some big insurance companies. So we had, while we were building the brokers, we decided, okay, let's productize what we built. And for banks and insurance companies, no one is chasing the SMEs, right? Because they're so small. So why don't we productize what we built for the largest multinationals and insurance companies with their bank partners can sell it to the SMEs. Same thing, but a productized version, right? Except if we get rid of all these middlemen, insurance is cheaper, doctors cheaper, what SME will say no to cheaper, right? That's all they care about, cheaper. More for cheaper, right? So... That business took off during the pandemic Mm. for us. The business that's purely digital, where we don't chase after clients. The banks already have these clients. You know, they already have hundreds of thousands of SMEs, and the SME employees can use this for everything they want, except it's productized. So, why don't we build a SaaS model? So, during Mm. the pandemic, our face to face business just stalled and our our digital white label business just took off. So we decided sell off the brokers, right? Because the future will not be face-to-face. This really revealed to us, this is the future. Why don't we white label not only in Asia, but in Europe? Mm -hmm. Because insurers are just really paying when someone gets sick. And you know what? That happens around the world. In every country, people get sick, right? But no one's integrated the ecosystem and our platform could you could change language, you could change currency, you can change insurer, you just integrate to different teledoctors, different health screening, different wellness providers, right? So different payment gateways. So why don't we do that? So that was our massive pivot. So we went mm-hmm. from 330 people yeah. to 15. Can wow. you imagine? 15. Yeah. Everyone else but me are tech people. Mm. because the platform is built now that we've experimented in so many countries and we had a million users we sold off all those pieces but we've been able to productize because what sme wouldn't want what a multinational has but cheaper buy your insurance do prevention do wellness um, do step challenges right and have the same treatment so that's what we pivoted our business that gives me a good pivot into speaking about Europe. I see our guests coming on here from BPI France, uh, Fanny de Lavelle, to ask you a question. Fanny, over to you. Hi, Fanny. 
Hi, Rosaline. Thank you so much for, for having me here. And thank you so much for, for your great answers. It's really inspiring um, to hear how you really challenge this, you know, long established industry and, and successfully uh, adapted it to, to the modern the modern age, uh, in a way, and to modern challenges. So, so that's really interesting. Um, I would love to ask you a little bit more about your transition to the corporate world, to being a startup leader. I know, you know, there's a lot of People today mm, yes. don't want to spend their lives right in one institution. What were maybe some of the challenges, but also some of the good things that you took from the corporate world into your experience as a startup CEO? So life, there's so many pros and cons of corporate life versus startup life. Um, but as a leader um, in a startup versus a large firm, I spend so much more time um, making faster decisions. So the pace of a startup, um, it took me five years to get no's every year for five years. Um, for me to go to an investor, right, is let the market decide instead of the bureaucracy. I find in a startup that your decisions and your impact is huge right? So every decision matters. If I hire the wrong leader, it impacts the startup so much more, right? So culture matters so much more in a startup than it does in a big firm. There's no buffer, right? When you make a mistake with a leader, it infects the whole culture. It poisons everything. So I find that I have to correct my mistakes faster, mm -hmm. So, um, and everything matters. The tech matters, the product matters, the talent matters, right? So I have to communicate so much more than I used to. Interesting. Yeah, that's a, those are really interesting points in terms of where you, like the, the pros and cons of, of becoming really a startup CEO. And you raise an important question on, you know, choosing the right talent. Um, that's key, of course, in any organization, but especially in, yes. in a smaller one. What are some of, how do you make your decision making really when you hire someone? What are the key, the key decision points? So, you know, there's, there's a valid excuse for every single failure. So I look for people that can overcome those valid excuses. Because in a startup, if you don't fix your failure, you, you just die, right? So you have to find people who are so resourceful, who don't always think that they're right, right? Who are willing to listen, right? Who can bounce back from from adversity and crisis because shit happens every single hour, right? Because you're experimenting, you're building stuff for the very first time. So character matters so much more in a startup. Um, and you need really positive people because with all that shit happening every hour, you can become really sad and you can feel like you're doomed, but you got to be able to claw your way out, right? And, and fix your issues, right? And you have to fail faster, right? And fix faster. And, and you have to be resourceful about not spending that much money on things because you have no buffer. So the types of people, and I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I, I thought I could bring really successful corporate people 
into this environment, but you know what? You're in a war zone all the time and true character comes out and not everyone can deal with adversity the same way. Some people just let it drag them down and they become so negative, then they drag everyone else down, right? You have no room for politics, for bureaucracy or for poison. So culture matters, people matter much more than, than ever in, your, in, in, in corporate world. Interesting. That actually, you know, raises the question of, of culture. Uh, you've lived in different countries. Um, mm. Today, startups will not only raise, you know, in their country where they're, they're funded, right? They'll raise internationally. Yes. And I've seen in my experience with, with startups that sometimes cultural differences will come in the way of their uh, fundraising in the most efficient way. I don't know if you've had that kind of experience changing from culture to culture. And if so, what advice may you give to startup funders who are fundraising or looking for partners in other countries with different cultures that they don't quite understand? So I've, I used to run 14 countries at Mercer. Um, and now I, I, I've been in five. We actually located in five and we have fun, you know, we fundraise from investors in Europe and Asia. Um, so I think understanding the other person is so important, right? Because it's not about me. It, it isn't about me. It's about, you know, the other person. So that's the same for investors as well as for teams, as well as for customers. So we learn to localize, right? In what matters the most. And it's, it's, it's such a massive humbling learning for me, right? I'm much more humble than when I started because I know all my weaknesses now and limitations, right? So, um, yeah, I think listening is one of the biggest skills and understanding others is so important to run a startup for every stakeholder that I have to manage because I have to manage so many. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rosaline, for, for your great answers. Thank you. Great Thank questions. you, Fanny. Good to see you and take care in, in Paris. Hope to see you soon. <laughs> Me too. Well, Rosalind, so much uh, that we unpacked. And now we go into the final session, which is billion dollar questions. Eight questions that I ask you, you know, one-liners, first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Common misconception about you. Um, that um, I'm not married, but I am. And I have two kids because <laughs> people yeah. see me so obsessed about work. Love it. And and of course, this is not your first rodeo, right? You started uh, CXA at 51, was it? Yes, yes, yes. Well, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Highest high? My first client, right? On my own. That, that, I was shocked, right? So it's great. Lowest low? When I sold my broker. And the reason why is because 75 people followed me from my last three firms here. And you can imagine the sense of betrayal for me to say, I'm sorry, but I have to sell you off for survival. Yeah. Best mistake that you've made? I think the going to Procter & Gamble at 21 
Mm. And learning that um, I was so horrible gave me the drive to never be horrible again, right? Mm. That was such a failure in front of so many people. So I'm glad I failed in my first job on my first day. <laughs> it drove me forever to, to learn management. And I swore I would be a better leader from then on. And that's a good segue into this one. What's the hardest lesson that you've had to learn as a leader? That I have to get rid of toxic people as fast as possible and not let it fester because it infects mm. everyone, everyone. And I lose good people if I don't make those hard decisions. So I need to make those hard decisions and think about the team and not just about me and that one person. Right. Common advice you've heard others give that you strongly disagree with. It could be in the industry. It could be generally as in leadership. Um, I don't know. I'm not into making money. I, a lot of people want to build a startup to make money. Um, it's hmm. never been about the money for me. It's always been about, we got to solve this problem. And if I can solve it, I will. So don't join a startup just to make money. <laughs> don't be a founder yeah. just to make money because look, that's not going to help you when the shit hits the fan. Yeah. When you think of success, who do you think of and why? Um, I actually think of my mother because, look, she left two daughters behind. And now she has all these educated kids and zealots. Um, So she's had such a hard life. And she wants to live to 100 to see me succeed. She's 90 now. I told her it will take like 10 more years. (laughs) She's waiting for you, so yeah, better work on that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, her story really reminds me of uh, one of my favorite movies, The Joy Luck Club. Oh, I yes. My mother is Joy Luck Club. I'm the second yeah. generation. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. I mean, people think like this is bizarre, but it's it's real life. I've heard, uh, you know, many second generations like yourself as well. So it's, it's crazy. Um, and I met my like, two half sisters. <laughs> yeah, which is fantastic. And you guys, are you all sort of still, you know, do you come together for Chinese New Year when it's not a pandemic? Is it that sort of family dynamic already? Yes, or? yes. That's nice. Yes, except yeah. they live in Los Angeles. Ah, they're waiting for you. They, they and their, your husband waiting for you to come over here, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just yeah. finish. All right. Belief or habit, one belief or habit that has changed your life in a positive way. I couldn't hear you. One belief. Oh, my internet. One belief or habit that you've picked up recently, um, let's call it in the last five years, that has changed your life in a positive way. So I used to not sleep, not oh, eat well, and not drink water because I didn't have time to pee. And so <laughs> my first employee was a doctor and she said, you're a rat. And I said, what? She said, we sleep <laughs> for three days and you're the rat you're gonna die so the habit I picked up was sleeping right oh my goodness and exercising drink water and eating right I I was I was like this horrible person unfit but I didn't know it and I only found out at 51 that I was unhealthy wow for someone to be in insurance and thinking about health all the time (laughs) <laughs> to be like that. And I'm glad, I'm glad you, you've turned, turned things around. 
because we need yes. you here for, for much longer. Yes. <laughs> and I'm a fanatic about exercise now and a fanatic about sleeping well. So yes, I'm, I'm like a different person at 60. Good, good. What is your number one hack for productivity? Um, it really is getting massive amounts of sleep um, mm. and planning the day out, right? The night before so that I know what I have to get done, right? Because I'm just going like this. So yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm much more organized than I used to be and I'm fit. That's good. And finally, with your children, the top three values that you want your children to hold as priorities in their life. So I really want them to be happy and to find their purpose, right? Because that's what happened to me. Of course, it took 50 years for me. So <laughs> I told them, no hurry, no hurry. But figure out what is your purpose and meaning in life and do that, mm-hmm. right? You don't need to be rich, right? You don't need a certain job. You just need something that really drives you, that obsesses you. So just do that and it'll, it'll, you'll work really hard at it once you find that out. So what the other I, two? So, so find happiness and purpose. The other two? Um, huh. I think being a good person is really important. I, I, I think mm-hmm. what goes around comes around. So um, I think kindness is pretty important. And I also think we should give back, right? Yeah. How do we, how do we help the next generation? And what, what are we here for? How do we make an impact? Yeah. Well, Rosalind, that gave me a great ending because what you're doing with us right now in the last hour of just unpacking every decision that you've made, some of the mistakes and all that is all about empowering and and helping the next generation think, you know, build mental models for them to succeed, the next generation of leaders, whether they're they're funders or founders. And I I just want to ask you one last question just to end this. What's the vision for CXA now looking forward? Um, Profitability, what's the timeline? What's the big vision? To make you know that so, you've made it. Yes. Yeah, so our path to profitability with this new model is over the next two years. Um, and after Asia, we would like to go to Europe. We have some investors asking us to go there, but we're mm-hmm. trying to finish Asia first before we head over there. So go global. Go global and be one of the big guns, right? So now then you'll be the global brand. You started out being a no-name and now ending being global. So fantastic, fantastic uh, sharing, Rosalind. I'm so grateful for your time, your leadership, your authenticity that you bring to the table. I think we all need a little bit of that and uh, so grateful for you. To all of you um, that are joining us, please be sure to share, like, and subscribe so that we can hear more great stories of the underdogs that are not so much underdogs anymore, like Rosalind. But Rosalind, thank you for your time. And I hope to see you in Singapore or the US very soon. Great. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show. I'm Sarah Chen, and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves.